something I always forget to mention. If you need a listening device, a hearing device, there are uh, devices on the back table as well, and you're always welcome to just take one if that's needed. Okay. So, this evening I'm continuing the series that I've been um, sharing with you on the three pillars of, of the Dharma, Dana, Sila, and Bhavana. And so we've spent two weeks now on Dana. Dana meaning to give, the practice of generosity. Um, we talked about it in terms of this being um, a very important part of the development of our practice and development of our awakening. Um, Donna helping us uh, understand the truth of what's not self, um, letting go of ego, letting go of selfishness. Um, these are parts of, of our humanness that get in the way of our truest happiness and our awakening. And so Donna is part of the practice of releasing these habits of mind that hold us back. Donna also being a practice that fully engages us in our interconnectedness, our interdependence on each other, that we are not separate in any way from those around us, from our community, from this uh, earth that we live on, and how that is understood through the practice of Donna. So that's how we've spent the last two weeks. Today, uh, this evening, I'd like to speak about sila, which is the second pillar of the Dharma. And um, this word sila has many different translations. Usually it's translated, this is the Pali word sila. Uh, It's often translated as morality or moral conduct. Um, More often it's translated as virtue. So this is the development of our own inner virtue. I've heard it described as uh, integrity. I like that that definition, actually. Uh, Our integrity. To live in integrity. And to live in integrity is to live in harmony. That's another phrase that I often hear in relationship with this polyterm sila. To live in harmony with how things are. To live in harmony with truth. To live in harmony with our most deep aspiration for a free heart and mind. For inner peace. And so through that, we practice non-harming through the practice of sila. Uh, So this is what we're going to explore this evening. And I will spend a little extra time on um, one aspect of of this uh, practice of sila, which is wise speech. So uh, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later, but I will give special emphasis to that because I've been hearing that people are really interested in that particular topic, that that seems to be really relevant right now. Um, So we'll we'll explore that together. So sila. 
one of the things that we've been discussing in terms of the three pillars of practice, dana, generosity, sila, this integrity, living in harmony, uh, virtue, and then bhavana, which is in this context translated um, as the, the practice of concentration, of insight practice, um, the actual practices that we, we come and we sit for 45 minutes, whether it felt concentrated or insightful <laughs> within those 45 minutes, that's what we're doing, that's what we're intending to do anyway. And one of the things I've said several times, and I'd like to repeat it tonight because I think it's so true, is that with the coming over of this tradition from uh, Southeast Asia into the Western culture and then into this particular tradition, which is the insight tradition, um, there's a lot of inf- emphasis on bhavana, on the actual practice. You know, we, we hear about mindfulness, we hear about the heart practices, metta, all of these fit under this bhavana um, umbrella. And so there's a lot of emphasis here, and so I think we misinterpret that emphasis as giving this particular pillar most value. We value this most as the, the practice in order to help us awaken. And although it is incredibly valuable and necessary, it's not in balance if it's the only thing that we are cultivating. It's not in balance. That Donna and Sila this generosity and virtue, are they are equally of value in order to fully awaken our heart and mind. And so I want to repeat that because it is so important and it's easy to forget when we spend so much time engaged in the cushion practice <laughs> that these are um, also part of the fuller practice when we leave the cushion, for example. So sila, very important. It's important for many different reasons that I'd like to share with you. And one is uh, related to something I said just last week about Donna, and it, it applies to sila, and that is that we come to this practice and we sit and we engage in, in our mindfulness practice or concentration practice or whatever our practice is here in the chair and on the cushion, often with hopes that it will uh, settle our mind, that it will calm our heart, that it will have an effect on how we live our life. And that's a noble aspiration And it can be a little bit backwards. To have a fuller understanding of how the three pillars work, we actually begin to understand that by engaging in generosity, by lessening, because of that practice, this sense of selfness, the I-ness that gets in the way of our presence that gets in the way of our clarity. Um, by engaging in sila, in a life that is 
uh, in harmony with the truth, um, with our highest aspirations for happiness and awakening. Doing both of these and then coming to the cushion has these tremendous benefits of calming the mind. We come, we sit. The mind isn't so restless uh, or confused or muddled or exhausted. Um, There isn't this internal conflict that's happening. So there's a peacefulness that we actually bring to the cushion, we bring to our practice. And then from there, concentration arises. From there, Mindfulness becomes steady. And so it's just a different way of looking at how this this practice works, the actual operation of this practice. Um, Sometimes, perhaps we're doing it a little bit backwards. And so if you feel that as I'm saying that, yeah, when I come, I'm all stirred up and it takes me half an hour just to feel like I can sit here before everything calms down. Or I sit here the whole time and my mind's just like about a situation that happened before that perhaps I wasn't so much in integrity about. And so now I'm, I'm thinking about it and I'm ruminating about it and I'm, I'm contracted about it. And so if this is sounding true for you or you've, maybe, maybe it wasn't this evening, but maybe it's been something that's happened in the past, it's just something to consider. Perhaps the, your meditation is not the problem. <laughs> Perhaps it's how we're engaged in our life that's stirring up the actual meditation. So just a different way, a different angle of looking at all this. So, of course, the Buddha talked a lot about sila. This is a conversation that he has with his attendant, Ananda. Ananda is this wonderful character in the suttas um, who is so devoted to the practice and to the Buddha. But he hasn't awoken yet, and so he is always looking for more understanding, and he trips up a lot. Um, He's a very lovable and relatable character in the suttas, um, because his understanding is not always quite that quite clear, and the Buddha is always correcting him, and so we learn through Ananda um, the ways that we might not be so clear. And so, in this particular sutta, Ananda is asking the Buddha, "What is the reward and blessing of wholesome morality, which is sila?" And so the Buddha responds. Uh, that the reward and blessing is freedom from remorse, Ananda. And so then Ananda says, well then what is the reward and blessing of the freedom from remorse? And he says, joy, Ananda. And Ananda says, well what about joy? (laughs) He says, rapture, Ananda. Rapture can sometimes also be... um, translated as, as uh, a higher level of happiness. Um, and from rapture, says Ananda, and he says, tranquility. And it goes on and on, tranquility to happiness. 
happiness to concentration. Concentration to a vision and knowledge according to reality. So we're looking at wise view, really understanding at this point how things are. And then from there, a turning away uh, from uh, turning away and detachment, meaning uh, turning away from the things that keep us on this spiral in life or this cycle of, of creating our discomforts and suffering and unsatisfactoriness, the parts of us that are habitual, and we find ourselves over and over again repeating. Um, kind of the same dialogue, the same story of woe <laughs> that brings us here. So we learn to be disenchanted by it, really. And then from there, he says, well, then what about from turning away and detachment? And the Buddha says, the vision and knowledge with regard to deliverance. So we started at this moral conduct and as we engage in moral conduct, really as our, our base for deepening our understanding, first deepening our practice, and then deepening our understanding, we come to this place of deliverance, which I'm translating this as, as awakening. So this... this uh, this, this sila, uh, integrity, living in integrity and in harmony, um, it's necessary and has incredible benefits, as the Buddha is saying. So sila comes up in many different lists. There's lots of lists. The three pillars is one of them. And, uh, but sila comes up in, in other places too. And so two places that I'd like to... Um, bring your attention to. One is the precepts, the five precepts in particular. Um, These are practices that are taken on by uh, Buddhist practitioners of all all kinds. And they are about how to live in integrity in your life. And for lay men and women like ourselves, There are five traditional precepts that I'll share with you in a moment. When we go on retreat, a residential retreat, you have the opportunity to actually take eight precepts. If you're a novice monk or a novice nun, um, or I'm sorry, if you go to retreat, you take eight precepts. If you're a novice nun or monk, uh, you have you take ten of these precepts, so they just increase as your dedication <laughs> increases. If you are a fully ordained monk, then there are two hundred and twenty seven rules uh, that you would follow. If you are an ordained nun, there are three hundred and eleven. <laughs> so we're going to look at five. <laughs> Just to put it into some context here. So these are the five, and I'll read them the way that they're actually uh, translated directly out of the suttas. And each one starts with, I undertake the precept. 
So I undertake, I'm taking the training um, to, train, to train new habits of being in this, in this world. So I undertake the precept to refrain from destroying living creatures, meaning to restrain from, from killing, causing harm. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the precept to refrain from incorrect or false speech. I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs which lead to carelessness. Okay. So I'd like to say a little bit about these. So the first one, not taking, uh, taking the life of another. Um, something that we greatly value in this tradition, and we engage in it in many different ways. Uh, certainly there's the overt way of we're not coming here and, and attacking each other. <laughs> Right, which actually, that's a beautiful thing. While we're here and and among um, other practitioners, we can feel safe. In fact, all of these precepts create safety, a space of safety. We know that we won't be harming others, or we're we're in the practice of not harming others, and that others are also in that practice creating this really safe place. We also know through these precepts uh, that we can leave something and that someone won't pick it up and take it. Um, Something really valuable to feel that level of safety in a community of people that we don't actually know. Uh, It's one of the beauties, actually. I, I love going on retreat with the precepts knowing that everyone is very much fully engaged in taking these, these five practices or eight practices. And uh, knowing that I can, I can leave something on my cushion for, for hours and that it won't be taken. So again, this is creating trust, safety. From that trust and safety, the people around us can relax and we can relax into a more deep Um, presence of being here. Isn't that true? Undertaking the precept to to refrain from sexual misconduct. So our our sexual energy is very strong. And um, this is a precept to not only uh, protect those around us from acting inappropriately in a way that would make someone else feel unsafe, uh, but also just to have our own awareness. All of these are, work in this way. Our own awareness of how our, our sexual energy desires arise and can we be mindful of that? Um, can we engage in that, not to oppress it um, and also not to let it always be driving <laughs> what our actions and our speech are, that we're, that we're more in tuned than that. Uh, the next one being refraining from incorrect or false speech. 
speech is hard. That's why we're going to spend extra time on it this evening. Um, It can be easy to be harmless in silence, I think. (laughs) But the moment we open our mouth, (laughs) if we're not conscious of it, if our intentions are not clear, we can easily um, slip up on this one. And now we have technology, so there's all new ways to communicate uh, just by hitting a send button. We don't even have to be face-to-face with someone, and that has its own difficulties in terms of um, uh, using language that is not harmful. And then the fifth one, refraining from intoxicating drinks and drugs, which lead to carelessness. And that really is speaking to what this particular um, precept is about, that when our mind is not clear, we're more likely to break those other precepts. That is the purpose of this, of this, uh, so that we can really stay in integrity. This is from the Anguttara Nikaya. One of the, uh, this is one of the from one of the suttas. There are these five gifts, five great gifts. Speaking about the precepts. They are original, long-standing, traditional, ancient, unadulterated, unadulterated from the beginning, that are not open to suspicion, will never be open to suspicion, and are unfolded by knowledgeable contemplatives and Brahmins. Which five? And then he goes through the five precepts. And with each one, he says something like this. This is for the first one. There is the case where a disciple of a noble one's abandoning the taking of life abstains from taking life. So it's that first uh, precept. Not, Not destroying life. Not causing harm. In doing so, he or she gives freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings. In giving freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings, he or she gains a share in limitless freedom from danger freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression. This is the first gift, the first great gift. And then he goes on to say the rest of the precepts. So this is really um, a beautiful way of holding the precepts for, for our own understanding that this is not just something to... Uh, restrain from for ourselves, but that we can actually think of this as engaging as offering a gift to the people around us. Because when we engage in this way, when we are um, acting and speaking from integrity, we are not causing animosity, we are not causing danger, we are not oppressive to other people. And because of that, because we're engaging in this way, 
and people see us in this way, that we are a safe, peaceful person um, living in integrity, all of these things come back to us. So suddenly our life is not threatened by danger, uh, animosity, oppression. So this is the idea of how these precepts work in the world. And so to engage in this way and have this sense of safety, really when you think about it, at the, the, the heart of most of our fears about how life is going, what's going to happen next, um, will I be able to relate with this grouping of people, um, how do people see me, really at, at the root of all of this is a fear that is craving safety, isn't it? It's so fundamental, wanting this, this level of safety for ourselves, uh, physically and mentally. And so the precepts, precepts can create that in our life. We can cultivate that through our own actions. And this is a little counterintuitive because if we're coming from this place of fear, of uh, feeling like we don't have the safety we need, and in response we wall up, right? We, we put up um, uh, our messages that to stay away. Um, if we contract in response and perhaps act in ways that are of the opposite of these precepts because of that, we don't create more safety for ourselves. It seems rational maybe in the moment, but we're not creating more safety for ourselves. We're not creating safety for the people around us. So we can see in that way how this works. So it can be counterintuitive. So much of this practice is counterintuitive. And yet, if we've been operating from from the opposite of this, in this contracted way, we know the amount of dukkha or suffering that we've been living. It's not working, is it? It's not working. Perhaps it's why you come here. Perhaps it's why you're searching for something else. It's not working. And so to try this other way, even if you're not sure about it, if you can trust it yet, uh, you've got maybe nothing to lose. (laughs) If the other way is not working, then perhaps this is something to try. This living in integrity with these five precepts, just to see as an experiment, you know, engaging in this way and putting this out in the world, what then comes back? So Sila also comes up in relationship to the Eightfold Path, quintessential list in the Buddhist teachings. We talk about the Eightfold Path all the time. In the Eightfold Path, there's eight path factors. 
and those are then clustered into three groups. Um, and Sila is one of these groups. And so Sila is, uh, in this context, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. So wise livelihood, simply meaning um, to abandon dishonest livelihood. So again, living in harmony and how does your... Um, uh, the way that you're, you're living in the world as an engaged member of society, how is that um, in, in accordance with, with harmony, uh, with this integrity? Wise action being abstaining from taking life, abstaining from stealing, taking what's not yours, abstaining from sexual misconduct. So here we're seeing the precepts pop up again this wise action. And then wise speech. I think it's, it speaks to how difficult um, having this integrity and this sila present in speech, it speaks to how difficult it is and how we really do need to cultivate this peace um, that it has its own part uh, in in the Eightfold Path, that it's not just lumped with wise action. So wise speech is abstaining from lying, from divisive speech, from abusive speech, and from idle chatter. So to explore these a little bit, um, if you think about this particular list, and if this is something that you can imagine engaging in, um, think of it as using your speech to create connection. We're wanting to connect when we are communicating with other people. Even that root word to commune, to commune, to come together with other people. We're not trying to create disconnect. And yet, when we speak, we don't always have that in our intention. We just say what is on our mind or what we feel really has to be said in that moment. Um, or sometimes we just speak to fill the space, to fill the silence, that idle chatter. And so having that root intention to connect, to create connection rather than disconnect, is one way to hold this particular part of the Eightfold Path. We can do this by uh, cultivating our mindfulness, our presence, learning how to take what we do here on the cushion off the cushion. Do we have these really wonderful meditations and then leave the monastery and get in the car and find ourselves in a totally different mind state? Um, is our mindfulness, uh, is there a continuity of our mindfulness practice throughout our day? Do we lose it somewhere when we are in relationship with other people, when we're engaged with other people, when we're no longer being quiet and still? This would be understandable. <laughs> 
it's kind of like the next level <laughs> of practice in a way to be able to stay engaged and stay mindful and present with yourself and with another person. But it's very possible and necessary. If you come and you just have really great sits, but then you leave and you're causing harm, then there's really no point <laughs> to the coming and having a great sit. It's probably not benefiting you in the deepest way that it could. It certainly is not, if this is true. Which is true for most of us. I put myself in this category. You know, It's so easy to lose mindfulness when we're not in silence and in stillness and we're engaged in the world. So the practice of staying present, feeling our feet on the ground, feeling our body here when we're speaking to another person, noticing our emotions, what's stirring up, what's going on in our mind. It's just seeing the other person bring in a whole storyline of how this conversation is about to go? Or are we already triggered in a way where wise and right speech is no longer possible, even before we are fully engaged with that person? Or does seeing this person make us just really excited and over-exuberant to a point where we just, (laughs) we just say whatever's on our mind, And it's just gobbledygook and not actually connecting with that person. Um, So how to really stay engaged in the practice. Engaged with the body, using this body as an anchor. Um, We can do this. We can cultivate this. And I encourage everyone to do this in your day-to-day. And so I want to go through again these different parts of speech. Uh, All of them being a practice to uh, refrain from something. So the first one, refraining from lying. And that is probably an obvious, we've been taught since we were little kids that we're not supposed to lie, right? So we know that intellectually. But um, sometimes it's just so easy (laughs) to tell a little lie. Sometimes we do it to stay out of trouble. Or sometimes we do it because we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. Um, But when we become known as somebody who lies, our integrity is shaky. So how we're seen in our integrity is shaky. And then even internally for ourselves, having to keep up with those lies, (laughs) that's a lot of effort. It's a lot of effort. Even exaggeration and sarcasm sometimes will uh, be enough to plant seeds for a disconnect between you and another person. You know, we do it out of maybe feeling uncomfortable or some need to lighten the mood or, or to um, make an experience seem better than it really was. We're not really being very real in that moment. 
So all of these subtleties, we can really get into the subtleties of this. And so if we're restraining from lying, to cultivate then truth-telling. Can we cultivate truth-telling? Again, this is not always so easy. Uh, Sometimes telling the truth can feel actually more damaging than, than the lie. Huh? It's complicated. And so when we look, though, back to what's really an integrity right now, what's most an integrity and in the alignment with non-harming, we'll find our answer. It doesn't become complicated. It actually can become quite clear. What gets complicated is when our sense of self, our sense of who we are and how people are seeing us, gets in the way in terms of us being a really nice person or a really agreeable person all the time. Um, So sometimes we have to put that aside in order to be a truth teller. Some of the things to take into account, though, as a truth teller is timing Tone, how are you saying what you're saying? And validity, is this really true? Or is it just your truth in this moment? (laughs) So it's just something to keep in mind. The second one is refraining from divisive or malicious speech. So the kind of speech or engagement with another person where you're pitting against someone else, or a group of people, perhaps. Um, Sometimes this can feel really like a juicy way to connect with another person. You know that they don't like so-and-so, and you can connect with them by letting them know you also don't really like so-and-so. And suddenly we're in this conversation where we're feeling really connected, right? But there's someone who's, who is really left out, and we've actually created great disconnect, not only for ourselves and that third person or that third party, but also we've now fueled the disconnect in the other person with that third person or third party. We've created um, great harm through this particular, uh, this particular speech of divisiveness. When we're willing to speak about others in this way, again, it, it says something about our own integrity. How many of you have known someone who's always complaining about somebody and has something kind of nasty to say about everybody? And you think, God, I wonder what they say about me <laughs> when I'm not around. You know, so it does, it really affects our integrity with, our, with the people that maybe we really care about. Maybe we even think we've really connected with them and we're really close now, but they might not feel that way. They might actually uh, be on to our, to our divisive speech. And that connection is not so strong for them for that reason. And so in, in refraining from that type of speech, 
to cultivate harmonious speech, the type of speech that actually brings us back together. And so you can try this the next time you find yourself engaged in this type of divisive speech. What would it be like to suddenly plant in something um, that's actually quite kind about that person? Something that brings out the best in that person. I often share about my grandmother when I talk about this type of speech because she was so um, beautifully at integrity with this where if, if you were talking about somebody else in a negative way, she would every time without fail say, yeah, I know, they're really, they're really difficult. But you know... Uh, I saw them with their kids the other day and they're just so sweet and attentive. Or it's true, you know, that they said that thing or they did that thing, but, you know, they're really doing the best they can. I know they've had a really hard year and uh, or the family's had a hard year, and so I think they're really doing the best they can. So finding some way to highlight the fuller picture you know, if we were just seen in our most ugly, negative moments, and that was it, <laughs> it would only, luckily, <laughs> be uh, part of the picture of who we are. So this type of speech of creating harmony calls for us to see the good in people, to see the other side of even the most nasty people we can think of. There's a few of them on the news these days. (laughs) That in our humanness, we're we're never just one thing. We're way more complex than that. Is there a way to disengage from this divisive speech by cultivating a harmonious connection? So you can see the experimental nature of this. This is all just something to try. So the third one is restraining from harsh, abusive, or insulting speech. So oftentimes when we are upset, this is what comes out. When we are... um, triggered in some way and how quickly does the situation escalate in this case between you and another person when something is said that is um, harsh abusive insulting the other person immediately the, the connection is gone that ability to stay engaged and in conversation communication is done in that moment. Because the other person no longer feels safe and they put up their guard. And perhaps they even lobby over a retaliation remark that um, is also harsh and insulting and abusive. And then it can escalate so quickly from there. And suddenly, we've all probably been there in that argument or that yelling match, perhaps, where we think, God, how did he even get here? (laughs) This is not what I intended. 
and it can happen so quickly. It's just a match to some kindling, and there it goes. And so if we're restraining from this, then cultivating patience. Cultivating patience with those who are um, difficult for us. Cultivating patience with those who aren't really listening. Cultivating patience with those who don't see it the way we see it. <laughs> this cultivating patience is one of the ways to really uh, stay engaged when, when what is calling you is more of this abusive, insulting speech. And then finally, the idle chatter one. It's kind of a funny one for this list. It's, it's so subtle. You know, we don't really think necessarily that this would be harmful or even call into question our integrity, but it, it absolutely does. And we know this, perhaps even in ourselves, if we're this way, or if we know someone in this way where the silence is just taken up by chit-chat that isn't actually meaningful. Um, when we engage with people out of more nervousness or just a need to connect in some way, but not in any kind of deep way or uh, in a way that has substance, we're not really creating connection there. We're creating probably more disconnect. Um, have you ever had it where you just bup, 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 and you can watch the person who's listening just kind of, <laughs> their eyes roll back and they're no longer there with you, right? And um, so how to come back to that or come back from that. And so to cultivate then listening, deep listening. Even when there's a break in the conversation, can you listen to the silence that you're both being held by rather than just filling it with whatever pops into your head next. Sometimes the most beautiful connections with other people can be within the silence. So if you have a loved one or a friend whom you know uh, you're close, when you can walk down the street and say nothing to each other and just enjoy that presence with each other. There's something really valuable in that. Um, so we can cultivate that with each other, this deep listening. And then all of this, of course, is supported by how we speak to ourselves internally. And we're speaking, I'm talking about how this works externally in relationship with others, but all of these apply to how we speak to ourselves. The habits of speech start internally. If we are harsh and abusive to ourselves then that's how, what ends up coming out. It's a habit that we've grown. Uh, if we're lying to ourselves all the time, then there's, no, um, there's nothing to stop us from doing it externally to others. So you can see this connection that really it's, it's also something to be cultivated within our own minds. So,
Maybe I'll just stop there because um, we don't have a whole lot of time and just see if there's a question or a comment uh, about this, this topic. Yeah. And can someone pass the mic? We don't have Andrew tonight. <laughs> it's actually because it's being recorded and there are people using the listening devices, so this helps. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just curious whether Thela is tied more towards intention or towards action. I mean, you know, suppose I don't engage in sexual misconduct, but I'd really like to. Is, uh-huh. that, is that still Thela? <laughs> <or? laughs> That's a great question. It starts with our intention. Mm-hmm. It starts with intention. And so the intention, maybe, maybe there's the desire that arises mm-hmm. um, for, for in, in your example, um, to engage in, in sexually in some way. But if you can catch that intention and then follow it with another intention, if it's appropriate, then by all means. If it's not appropriate, then to restrain, to, to turn attention in a different way, to actually stay with the experience of that desire um, that you don't have to oppress it, but to stay engaged in a mindful, conscious way with it. There's a lot of intention that has to be under that in order to stay there. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so intention is a huge part of, of sila, of this practice. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Any other comments or questions? Yeah, hi, me. I'm not sure that you'll have the answer to this question, but I'm curious about why the women have so many more precepts than men. That's a great question. I, I actually don't, I, I actually have heard that question asked, and I've heard the response from nuns before, but I don't remember what they said. Um, and I don't know what they are, those extra <laughs> precepts. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. So taking this on as a practice, engaging in wise speech, perhaps uh, reciting the precepts, that can be a beautiful practice every day even to start your day with this cultivating of intention to, to um, engage in the world or give this gift to the world that is in integrity and harmlessness and in harmony. And then seeing how putting that out into the world has an effect on what comes back how that protects you, how it holds you in your practice and in your life. So we'll take a moment to offer another gift, the gift of merit. Uh, You know, merit is not something that belongs to any of us. It's something that is cultivated through uh, our actions and the way that we spend our time, 
This is a beautiful way to spend time, to listen to the Dharma, to practice the Dharma. And then to increase our understanding and relationship with dana, with, with offering. We can uh, dedicate this time and this goodness that we've, we've cultivated. And so there's two cards here that were filled out. <laughs> and so the first one is to Bernie Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> So whether you agree with this or not, this particular person says that he is a person that demonstrates compassion and wise speech. And uh, also dedicating the merit to Grace. And I think the last name is Zhao. Is that correct? Sorry? Joe is the last name. Um, and that may, wishing her to be free from, from Dukkha. And then perhaps there's someone in your own heart and mind that you'd like to uh, dedicate the merit to, and you can just sit quietly with that person or a grouping of people in mind. And then dedicating the merit to all beings. May it be for all beings everywhere excluding none. May all beings be safe from inner and outer fear and harm. May all beings be happy and content. May all beings be healthy in their mind and in their body. And may all beings find some path that leads them to more freedom and awakening. Thank you, everyone, for your attention and for your presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.